0: So I trust that you had a good Christmas and a meaningful uh, New Year's. Uh, Judy and I, we went, uh, my little joke on this always is we went south for New Year's. And uh, south means we went to Eyebrow, which is two hours south from here. And uh, Judy's mom and dad, of course, lived there. And uh, so we had a wild party there. Uh, we uh, played hearts and uh, other card games and uh, brought in the New Year. And, um, but uh, it was a meaningful time for us. Uh, Something that's always meaningful for me, and I think you know this, or many of you would know this, uh, at least those of you acquainted with me, but it's a practice of mine to read a commentary from the book of Revelation. Uh, I started doing it such about 20, 25 years ago, and I always read this commentary between Christmas and New Year's right in that time span, beginning somewhere uh, in December and finishing somewhere in the early part of January, and I started doing that about 25 years ago, and I didn't sit out that this would be an ongoing uh, discipline of mine through the years, but uh, I just recognized that here I was, a man of the cloth, Reverend Harry Strauss. People would actually call me Reverend Harry Strauss. And, I'd, I'd you know, so you'd, you'd, there's a certain expectation you know a certain amount of the Bible and most books of the Bible. And I'd come to this book of Revelation, and I didn't have the foggiest idea how to interpret this book and understand it. And uh, so I just read a book, and then coming out of that, I realized there is so much more to know and so much more to realize and grow in, and uh, so it just sort of continued as a discipline through the years. Uh, So that, and and I mean, there is something, you know, what really motivated me in the early years was just to learn about this book. Uh, But what really motivates me now is just uh, certainly the learning that comes with it, but uh, Really, when you walk through the book of Revelation, you are in a sense carried up into the heavens. And so you are in a heavenly experience for that span of time as you read about this book and you study and you meditate on it and you reflect uh, on this very book. So online there is a listing of uh, top commentaries for each book of the Bible. Uh, Those of you who may be not acquainted with the word commentaries, a Commentary is a book that uh, provides uh, insights and information, background, uh, interpretation of a Bible book. So there are commentaries, many hundreds of commentaries uh, for each book of the Bible. But online there is a, um, a, a service or a site that is entitled Best Commentaries, which uh, is, provides ranking by scholars and pastors and and others who want to have input in terms of the best commentaries that are out there on the market. So, it's, so if you ever want to read a commentary, those of you who are real keeners, you want to read a commentary on Galatians, or you want to read a commentary on Genesis, uh, I would suggest you go to best commentaries, and then you get a ranking of the best ones, from number one through to 136, or whatever the number might be in terms of commentaries that are there. Now, for a number of years, the top-ranked commentary, and it continues to be, on the book of Revelation, is one by a G.K. Beale. Now, before you might consider going out and buying it, uh, I would alert you to the fact that it's 1,245 pages long. And uh, when I saw that, I thought, how can a man say so much about such a short little book? Uh, The other thing is it's really technical. So in the absence of the Greek language, uh, koinonia, Uh, it really would be a challenge to work through because he's constantly referencing the original language. Now, I bought the book five or six years ago, but it still sits on my shelf in my office. (laughs) I've never found sort of the the space and the the resolve to work through 1,245 pages. But last year, Beale released an abbreviated digest of that book, and it's only 450 pages long. And they put their creative team together and they gave this book a new title, Re- Revelation, A Shorter Commentary. And uh, anyway, when I saw that, and I've always wanted to step into the world of Beal and find out what he's been saying, this is the number one commentary in the world on the book of Revelation. I finally stepped into Beale here two or three weeks ago. And thus far, I'm almost there at the end. I am towards into chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. So I want to share some thoughts this morning uh, from Revelation chapter 1. And uh, Beale will be coming through me in terms of his influence into my life. But right at the onset of my reading in chapter 1, a short phrase captured my attention. And that phrase influenced my reading not only of Revelation chapter 1, but of the whole book thus far. So I want to introduce that biblical thought to you and then as a part of our message we will read through Revelation chapter 1 and we'll make comments about this chapter especially from the angle of this short little phrase that caught my attention uh, from this book. So Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 is uh, where this phrase first appears. It's a price, and I want to say this up front, that this really is a priceless biblical truth uh, that merits embracing for a 2000 chapter, uh, 2016. The truth here, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And the phrase there, of course, is from him who is and who was and who is to come. But the phrase that I want to bring to your attention and impress upon you and us as a group of people for 2016 is this short little phrase that is parked right up front that says, from him who is. That same phrase appears just a few verses further down in chapter 1, verse 8, where it is said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So why did the phrase capture my attention as it did for G.K. Beale as he was writing his commentary as well? Well, the reason is with the ordering of this phrase, the fuller phrase, one might have expected the text to say from him who was, and who is, and who is to come. It could be argued that the more natural sequencing here, or the more natural ordering would be, uh, past, present, and then future. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, the writer, John, inspired by the Spirit of God, parks up front this very thought, first of all, that God is. Now, the interesting thing is, again, when you think about the natural ordering, When you go further on in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, it actually has that past, present, future sequencing. So it says, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In other words, past, present, and future. But here in chapter 1, verse 4, and again in verse chapter 8, the ordering begins with from him who is, with a present reality mentioned first, signaling added emphasis to this truth. It's the first statement about God in Revelation. And so for a book that we oftentimes think that is primarily about the future, the first thing that the book of Revelation says about God is not that He's coming, though that's included, but the very first thing, and ordering is important in the Greek language, the very first thing that is said is that He is the God who is. Now, I think, I think this is terribly exciting. <laughs> now, I know for the rest of you, you know, it's language and it's Greek language. And, but in Greek, this is really significant. It was really significant to Beal. And it's darn significant to me as well as I read through Revelation. First thing about God said is that God is, which reinforces this biblical idea that God is fully engaged with us in the present. Right now. And and it doesn't only say it once here in the opening chapter. It says it twice. And then we'll pick it up at the very end where it's yet again mentioned as well. I, I want to suggest to you with total intentionality, the Spirit of God working through John, the apostle, the writer of this book is saying to him that God is. God is. God is fully engaged in the present reality. Now, thematically, that phrase introduces, that, introduces something that is, in my judgment, part and parcel to the whole book. God is engaged with his people. He is engaged with us in the present moment. He is the God who is. So in the time that we have, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. We'll read through it, and not, every, not with every verse, but with a number of verses, we're going to come back to this thought to reinforce it. That this is a message that, is, that God is wanting to convey through chapter 1 of Revelation and certainly through the whole book as well. That yes, Jesus is coming, the second coming, but equally as a part of that and maybe more prominent right now in the very present moment, God is as well in our lives, in our world. So let's step into this and read verses 1 to 20 and make comments about this as we walk through and keep coming back to the idea that The God who is. This truth that is parked right up front with this text. So verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. What must soon take place? Let's pause there and uh, just make a few comments about this. Um, How you would understand this really reflects your interpretive understanding of the book of Revelation if you are confused with this book, uh, there are, and, and there's good reason why you might be confused with this book, there are at least four different ways in which interpreters, scholars, approach the book of Revelation. And they, uh, some of them are radically different, one from the other. But I want to put two in front of you in terms of uh, what scholars uh, think about the book of Revelation. The first one is what must soon play, take place Uh, The book from this perspective is primarily about the future. So Revelation is a blueprint, final days, years related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So everything, especially from Revelation chapter 4, has to do with the future. And it's a detailed blueprint about what the final days and years will be like. So if you are fans and you follow the Left Behind series, that would be the perspective that would be carried by the Left Behind series. Others would suggest that the book was written not as a detailed blueprint of the future, but written to encourage believers in the midst of persecution. The historical context for the book of Revelation is that the Roman Empire, with the Domitian, the emperor at that point of time, was, uh, there was persecution that was happening. And with that in mind, the book becomes one of Christians appealing for justice. And then what you see through the book then is the coming of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath. And in the midst of this, believers are called to persevere with an eye on the glorious return and reign of our Lord. So the future is there, but it is first rooted in a historical context. Now, the interesting thing is if you take that second perspective on the book of Revelation, then for these people who were suffering and who are going to die for their faith, and who are going to lose loved ones, this message right up front, that the God who is, that God stands with them in the midst of their suffering. God stands with them in the midst of their death. God stands with them in the midst of their loss. will be a phenomenal message of of hope and comfort, and of paramount value to them. So let me go, go on. So the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, if you like angels, the book of Revelation is full of angels. Uh, it is uh, from the very chapter 1 right through to the end of the book. It's all over the place. Uh, over the Christmas season, we watched, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful life, and you know, there's an angel in there. There's, there's Clarence, who is a part of the story. And uh, he provides divine guidance to George Bailey. Well, the angels, I think, in Revelation are probably far more angelic-like as, uh, as we would encounter them. But clearly, the interesting thing is wherever there are angels in this book here, it speaks of the presence of the Lord. And it reminds us of the presence of the Lord. And I've, you know, sometimes I encounter people that they say that they have met an angel or an angel interacted with them or an angel appeared to them and It's never happened to me, but with those people where they have encountered or have been encountered by an angel of of the Lord, they speak of the Lord who is in their lives and the presence of the Lord and the reality of the Lord. So this angel comes to the servant John, and then in verse 2 it says, of him who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, The interesting thing is that in this day and age, going back 1,900 years ago, most people could not read. Uh, Literacy was only like about 15 to 20 percent. So someone, when this letter was received by the churches in Asia Minor, someone had to get up and read this. And so this comment is made right up front. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Not only blessed are the ones who read the words of this prophecy, but blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So that's true for us. Uh, In reading this material, in reading chapter 1, obviously we're not reading the whole book here this morning, but in reading chapter 1 and engaging chapter 1, there is, there are blessings to be garnered by the people of God. Blessed is the one who, blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in here. You know, and my assumption is, and I, and I think this would be true of scholars as well, that as perplexing as we find the book, and part of, our, you know, part of the complexity comes with there are so many interpretive frameworks for the book of Revelation nowadays, uh, but early believers, when they heard this, uh, acquainted with the type of literature, apocalyptic literature, acquainted with the symbolism, acquainted with the historical context, they were in it, acquainted with the purpose, they would have understood the whole book. As it was read. And it would have taken about 50 minutes. We've done it in our Forest Grove setting here. In our Revelation class. Which we had about a year or two ago. But Mike Morrison read it for us. And you can read the whole book in about 50 minutes. But, but they would have understood it. And in saying that. I'm just saying that it's really in some ways. Uh, it's not that complicated of a book. It is a book to be discovered. And all kinds of fantastic truths. And blessed are those. Who hear it. And take to heart what is written in this book. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is. There's that line. First thing about God, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. That, that last phrase there, the seven spirits before his throne, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Much of the language in the Old Testament really finds its roots, or much of the language of Revelation finds its roots in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, of those who have done this assessment of this, of the 404 verses that we have in Revelation, it suggests that 278 can be referenced back to the Old Testament, either directly or oftentimes indirectly. And that's a major contribution of G.K. Beale, this, again, this gentleman who wrote this commentary of 1,200 plus pages, and, and a big part of his suggestion as he interacts with the Old Testament is that before we jump into the future and, and try to figure out this as a, as a detailed blueprint of the future, he says we've got to go back to the Old Testament and wrestle with how the Old Testament feeds into the book of Revelation. And it makes sense in that the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. The, the, the Bible, the New Testament that we have, wasn't formalized for about 300 plus years. And in the midst of that, the early believers, the only Bible they really had was the Old Testament. And so John, the apostle, obviously was saturated with the Old Testament. And so when he's drawn into this heavenly experience and the Spirit of God working through his life, all kinds of Old Testament phrases and images and pictures that come to the surface. Now... The seven spirits before his throne. The image is taken from Zechariah 4.2 where the seven lamps represent the spirit. And the number seven is important in Revelation as it is symbolic of completeness and fullness. It's not explicitly stated here, but it is understood the God who is that governs also the spirit. The spirit who is. The spirit who in fullness abides with us now and continues to work with us. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is, there you get that sort of present tense again, from Jesus Christ, who is, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Why these statements about Jesus Christ? If we take that interpretive framework of the book being written to those or was written to those who are about to suffer for their faith, I mean, these would have been phenomenal statements of encouragement to them. Jesus is the faithful witness. And that word witness there is the word from which we get martyr from. And so Jesus in his death was that faithful witness. And so the word of exhortation really, the word of encouragement to believers was to be faithful even as they were facing death. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Death may come, but as Jesus, believers will experience the resurrection. And so there are different pictures that we pick up through the book of Revelation where there is the coming of life from those that have died. I think the most significant one, and we miss it oftentimes, is Revelation chapter 20 with the 1,000-year with the reign rule. It is the beheaded that come to life and reign with Christ. It's talking about those who are persecuted. And so this image that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead the exhortation to these early believers who are about to die for their faith is to stay true because ultimately they will live. They will live. Life will come. And so the message really in part in Revelation is this message of staying, persevering, and to be overcomers. So it's no accident, it's no accident that when Revelation 2 and 3, you got the seven churches that are that are talked about, the exhortation to every one of those seven churches to overcome. And the message equally for the people of Forest Grove 2016 is to be overcomers. And part of how we find our capacity to be overcomers in life is to be reminded and remind ourselves that there is a God who is. There is a God who is. And it's not talking just about his existence. It's talking about temporally in time. There is a God who who is presently fully engaged with the people of God. That's the principle that comes out of this phrase right here. God is fully engaged. God the Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit with the people of God. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is. True 1900 years ago when that was written. True equally today as well. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The implication of that phrase for those who are suffering was, oh my goodness, Domitian, the emperor of Rome, who, who saw himself as God and who wanted everyone within the empire to bow down before him and acknowledge him as God. The implications for him is that, well, the implication for believers is, what do they do with that? Do they bow down before this emperor in ninety ninety five 95 AD? Or they, do they refuse and resist? For those who refused and resisted, uh, death could potentially come back to 1,900 years ago. So the implication of that line is Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth designed to encourage these early believers. Equally a word of encouragement to us as well today that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The verse that goes on, the next one, to him who loves us. Now, and again, the Greek language is quite unique and you feel things in the Greek language, but it's in the present tense here. And the next verb goes into the past tense. And so there's something really intentional in this present tense here, to, the, to him who loves us. The idea of this one who is God, who is right now, this present reality, who engages with us in the present reality, is ongoing involved in loving us right now. Ongoing. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father. To him be glory for pow- and power forever and ever. Amen. And then it goes on in verse 7. And I've just put one little phrase up, and uh, we'll, we'll get the rest of the verse up shortly. But it says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Now when you see that, what does that sound like? Just by itself. Does it sound like he's coming in the future? Or he's coming right now? There's this emphasis in revelation that is not only the future, but it is like right now. Like, I mean, this was being read and the reader could have stopped and said, Look! Here he's coming! Over here! (laughs) And his present reality, look, he is coming with the clouds. There's this emphasis within Revelation where he's coming now to address the issues that early believers were facing. Thus, there is this sense of a present coming as well as coming sometime in the future. I'll give you a couple examples from the seven churches. To the church at Philadelphia in chapter three, ten, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And the understanding is he's coming to them in the now with the issues that they were facing, the death that would come to that congregation. He is coming now. So it's consistent with this idea that the God who is—he's not just in the Book of Revelation the God who comes in the future, but He is a God who is coming now, 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 now. And that was the image that they were trying—that was being tried—that is being conveyed by this chapter or these verses right here, or in Laodicea, the church at Laodicea. It isn't a statement about coming soon. It's a statement that here I am. I've already arrived. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So it's an interesting contribution of G.K. Beale, where he says we can actually think of ongoing comings that ultimately will conclude with Christ's second coming. But again, it's consistent with this idea of the God who is. I would want to suggest you take whatever situation that we're dealing with in life, that may be oppressive, challenging, difficult, hard. And this message from Revelation, this subtle message that comes through Revelation chapter 1, is a message that comes to us. Look, I am coming. Not only in the future, but also right now. You look at the full verse in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is. So there it comes through again. And who was and who is to come? The Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, verse 9 could really be understood as reinforcing this perspective that This book was written to those who were suffering for their faith and about to die for their faith. John talks about being a companion in that suffering and that patient endurance. In verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, churches in what was Asia, what was Asia Minor and modern, what would be modern-day Turkey today. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. That, that, that line, the son of man, is imagery that is drawn from the book of Daniel with a, with a clear reference and understanding to Jesus Christ. And the picture here is he is among the stands. Uh, from the final verses of this chapter, we understand that we know that the lampstands here refer to the seven churches. And the seven churches that are here in Revelation really are representative of all churches through all time, uh, through all of history. But the message here is consistent with this idea of the God who is. Christ is among the churches. And I would say that, again, this phrase brings added force to this picture, that Christ is among us. So when we say that we were a church, and or whenever we're a church, we feel the presence of the Lord, we're really picking up on Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. He stands among the lampstands. He is our God who is. Verses 14 to 16 give a picture of what Christ looks like. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, which really picks up on the wisdom of Christ. His eyes were like blazing fire. There's penetration there. There's conviction there. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. There's a strength there. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, where there's authority there. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, where there is the issue in the book of Revelation is the issue of justice. And especially when you get to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, one of those key questions, how long, how long, how long before there will be justice for the blood that has been spilt? So there's this picture of a sharp double-edged sword out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, talking about the beauty of Christ and the intensity of Christ. Now, I try to imagine this picture as a meditative way of connecting with Christ and thinking of Christ. Uh, I watched a movie in the last month here entitled The Apocalypse. It really wasn't that great of a movie, but they tried to... They tried, and it's about the writing of the book of Revelation, but they, they tried to picture this, and there are some things that are best left to the imagination to reflect and meditate and, and see and, and to see this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really the outcome of this whole message and really of this picture right here is as we ultimately leave this place uh, when the worship service is done, do we walk away with the sense that God is is right now fully engaged in the present moment with me? So it's interesting, Paul the Apostle at one point in his life as he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy he says, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Uh, can I leave this place with the the, the imprint of Revelation chapter 1, this idea of the God who is this, this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I face various issues, uh, we're, not, we're not dealing with persecution here, but it was still, as we deal with various issues in, in the course of life, as we journey through life, do I leave with the sense where I can say, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. It takes faith to exercise that. It takes faith. It takes a certain even faith imagination to exercise that. But as revelation is written to us, the God who is, this Jesus Christ who stands with us, do I exercise faith where I say, yes, he is with me. When I saw him in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Can you imagine if we had five or six people from our church that had been pulled out of this place and were killed? What kind of implications that would have for us as a church and how it would cause us to sort of respond in certain ways? And then can you imagine, can you imagine... Words like this prophetically related to us as a congregation and the impact it would have on us. It is no wonder that the book of Revelation... I took a class on Revelation years ago at the Lutheran Seminary here, and Dr. Buck was my teacher. It was out of Europe, this gentleman. But he said in in World War II in Europe, among evangelicals, the most popular book was the book of Revelation. Now, the circumstances were different. It's war, but still it's loss of life. Death after death after death of scores of people across that land. And it's no wonder why evangelicals would be racing to the book of Revelation. Not so much to get a blueprint of the future, but to find encouragement and hope and, and strength. And can you imagine the impact of these words? Do not be afraid. And the, really the idea is they're stop being afraid because they were afraid. Stop being afraid is really the idea of the here. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Everything is bracketed around me. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. In other words, uh, you too, are, yes, you too will be alive. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys to this place called death. Now, I'm not anticipating death in 2016. Uh, At least I hope I don't die in 2016. I'd like to live uh, quite a few more years, and my guess is most of you are not anticipating death in the upcoming year. But the message, obviously, is that ultimately each one of us will pass away and we have to face our mortality. And this is a word that is an appropriate word for each one of us as we wrestle with mortality thoughts that we might have. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's a darn good thought to take into 2016. And behind it is this thought. Jesus is. Behind this thought is the God who is. Fully engaged with us in the present moment. You know, when I was watching that movie, The Apocalypse, there's a scene in there where, and it's, it's artistic expression that's happening. It's not there in the book of Revelation, but... Uh, there's a moving scene in that John. He's invited to heaven, where he sees one of his fellow believers who, on earth, was close to death, but now is in heaven because he has passed away. But now he's fully in heaven. A beautiful scene that really captures the truth that is here. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What is now the present state of the church, which we would see in Revelation chapter two and three if we were reading that, and what will take place later: the persecution, the judgment. And then ultimately the final days. And then verse 20 and 20, 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that brings us to the end of Revelation chapter 1. There were no chapter divisions. There were there was no numbering. And so this what we, what we see happening here flows right into chapter 2 and 3. There was no chapter division between 3 and 4, and that just flows into the throne room scene in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and there really is a flow that go- happens all the way through these opening chapters. Now, some 3,500 years ago, as we, as we move to conclusion here, some 3,500 years ago, Moses asked God his name. He did so because he knew that the people of Israel would ask him that question and I don't know if you remember what God said to Moses, but God said to him, I am who I am. That is to say, um, that is what you were to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you, which is kind of a curious name for God. It's not the identical language that we have or the identical thought that we have in Revelation, but it's in the same vein of biblical truth. Our God is the God who is. He is in the present moment. He is the God who self-identifies himself as the I am God, presently engaged with us in the moment. So, as we continue to worship here in a few moments, and as certainly as we step out into the world in 2016, grace and peace to you from him who is, is our primary thought, and who was, and who is the come. Our response to this, it's interesting, Revelation gives us a response to this. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, we get this phrase that appears yet again, uh, another time. And the response is, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Our response is really one of thankfulness. And in the book of Revelation, the parallel passage to Revelation 11, when you get to Revelation 19, and, but the language is even more intensified, the language really is one of hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. I will forget this truth at different times in 2016. You will forget this truth that our God is a God who is fully engaged with us in the present moment. But may we in different ways and through interactions with people in our worship, may may we be reminded at different times that our God is a God who is fully engaged with us in the present moment. Amen.